Good morning. It's 7.31. Once again in Hong Kong, some 230,000 protesters rallied on Sunday. That's according to the uh, organisers' estimate. However you tally it up, though, the images show a sea of people. Some of the headlines have suggested there have been bloody protests involved as well. Clashes with police did lead to six arrests. Um Another thing to mention is this time they chose to march through West Kowloon train station. It was the nearest place they could get to mainland China, directing very much their attention uh, there. Professor uh, Steve Tsang, director of SOAS China Institute at SOAS University of London, joins us on the line. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, we also have Professor John Keane from the Department of Politics at the University of Sydney, and thank you also for taking the time. We will. Uh, I think we do have Professor Keane, I believe, on the line. Let me just try one more time. Good morning to you. Yes. Good morning, Joe and our team. Yeah. So, if I could just uh, stick with you from for a second, Professor Keane, with um, this site being changed to West Kowloon train station, and, and and given that the protests have been directed not just at mainland China but also at Carrie Lam, the chief executive, and the powers that be that uh, seem to be bending to China's will, uh, what do you read into the location change? Well, I think the West Kowloon. Uh uh, station has a double significance uh, for the protesters. Uh, you, we all know that on Sunday, an estimated quarter of a million um, demonstrators uh, gathered around that station. Uh, and their um, uh, claim uh, is that uh, they wanted to show Chinese visitors who come through uh, from, for example, Shenzhen and, and Guangzhou to Hong Kong, they wanted to show Chinese visitors what democracy actually is. And the organizers spoke about their peaceful, rational, and, and graceful uh, protests. And there were banners. Um, there are no rioters, only tyranny. Um, so the first significance is that um, West Kowloon Station is uh, a link uh, in the high-speed rail network to Shenzhen and uh, Guangzhou. I think the other and wider uh, significance, symbolic significance of this uh, West Kowloon Station is that the architecture actually scrambles um, the, the boundaries between Hong Kong and the People's Republic of uh, China. So the customs and immigration and ticketing officers actually um, uh, defy a strict uh, territorial demarcation. And this means uh, for uh, many uh, Hong Kongers and certainly uh, millions of young uh, Hong Kongese uh, citizens that um, the West Kowloon Station stands as a, as a symbol of the way that there is a kind of siege being imposed on Hong Kong from Beijing, a slow-motion siege, a kind of strangulation uh, in which there's a walling off of communications with, um, with China. Uh, there's been no movement on free and fair elections. Uh, the parliament is turned into a rump parliament. Um, and so there's a kind of spatial colonization going on of Hong Kong, also the demonstrators feel. So, Professor Sang, for people watching around the world, they, they, if they are 
watching from democratic countries that they will naturally feel some sympathy for these Hong Kong protesters. Britain's in an interesting position, of course, having um, relinquished control of Hong Kong several years ago now. How is this situation being read over there? Well, the UK is watching what happens in Hong Kong with uh, great interest and concern. Um, there is a recognition in the government and certainly reflected in the works of... I'm, I'm sorry, Professor Sang, I'm going to have to jump in there because the line, I was hoping it was cl- clear up, but it's, it, it's jumping around. Let's see if we can fix that and I'll come back to you Professor Keane, we can broaden that same question out, though, to the world and, and, and including where you are in Australia. It, it's a natural tendency to be sympathetic towards democratic protesters. But when clashes become violent or when protesters storm a legislature and stand up against the might of China, what, what is the general feeling, would you suggest? Can we sum it up? Well, um, one way of, of thinking about it is that it's a great, I mean, the civil society resistance um, in Hong Kong uh, is a great unintended consequence of the handover agreement. Uh, we now know from the documents that when Mrs. Thatcher negotiated with Deng Xiaoping in the early 1990s for the handover, um, Mrs. Thatcher um, and those around her never thought that there would be demands by Hong Kongese for democracy, um, that they rather believed that uh, Hong Kongese were only interested in money and would therefore accept a one-country, two-systems uh, arrangement. What we're witnessing is um, great resistance uh, from uh, the level of civil society against this uh, siege that I think is being slowly imposed on uh, Hong Kong. And the civil society resistance is remarkably sophisticated. It's a kind of mutiny against um, uh, Chinese rule. It's very media savvy. Uh, it's nonviolent. Uh, it does uh, dream of free and fair elections. It wants uh, rule of law, fatra, and it's also driven by a strong sense that there is um, that the cards are stacked against, especially the younger generation. Uh, that there is a developing precariat, as um, the word is sometimes used. That is, people who are finding it impossible or very difficult to live because of housing costs, apartment uh, rentals, um, the shortage of jobs, and the low-paying uh, jobs. So this is a very, um, it's a very explosive cocktail um, uh, buried in that, uh, in the civil, local civil society, and it poses a very big uh, dilemma for Beijing. Uh, crushing it would bring worldwide disapprobation uh, there would be great outcries from all four corners of our planet. But letting it um, remain and possibly to develop further is to call into question uh, the very uh, one country, two uh, systems arrangement. And it's to call into question the very uh, central role of the Communist Party as the kind of central nervous system of the whole order. Professor Sang, I- 
I think we can now reconnect with you effectively. And coming back to you on the British response to this, does Britain have a voice? Should Britain have a voice in what happens with Hong Kong? Well, the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984 committed the UK to be continuously interested in what happens in Hong Kong for 50 years after 1997. So there is a treaty obligation on the UK to pay continuous attention to what happens in Hong Kong and to help people in Hong Kong to maintain its way of life. Now, that is a treaty obligation, but the reality is that the Chinese government does not accept that, and the Chinese government will do everything it can to try to make sure that the UK cannot fulfil its treaty obligation. I can't help thinking, Professor Sung, that we're still on this even more serious collision course. Um, yes, I, I'd like to highlight again what Professor Keane said. This has largely been non-violent. Uh, there have been odd clashes, but we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people involved, generally non-violently. However, if they're up against this extradition bill, how are they going to feel when that 50 years comes up and they are effectively uh, fully assimilated under Chinese rule? Well, we are still 20, 28 years away from the date when the uh, one country, two system model will officially end. And a week is a long time in politics. 28 years is an eternity. We can't really know what the situation will be like. Um, if in 2047, Hong Kong would simply be turned into another Chinese city, much more like Shanghai. People in Hong Kong would be extremely unhappy. They would not want to simply accept that. But when that time comes, if people stay in Hong Kong, they will know that they really do not have much of a choice. But I think it is really all very hypothetical. The real issue here is how people in Hong Kong can defer and minimize the erosion of the high degree of autonomy for which they have been promised. There is a reality that while people in Hong Kong always believe that they should be able to keep their way of life until at least 2047, the Chinese government has never accepted that as a reality. They always expected a degree of erosion. Right. I mean, I understand um, in, in most democratic countries in particular, uh, politics moves very fast. But um, obviously, China has a slightly different political setup. And uh, Professor Keane, bringing you in on the same issue, do you feel that these, these protesters will continue to, to ramp up their options as we get closer to that date? And, and as we see perhaps China squeezing through its own pressure? Well, I think Professor Tsung is is right that we don't have a crystal ball, so it's not easy to anticipate um, unintended consequences. But I do think that um, it's very important to see uh, this current dynamic uh, from a wider and bigger perspective. And I think, uh, to repeat, that I think we're witnessing a clash between, on the one hand, empire building, 
this word empire, di guo, you cannot use officially uh, yet in China, but what is happening globally is the formation of a global Chinese empire that is, of course, entangled with that of the United States um, and that is now shaping the lives of um, many, many millions of people globally uh, on practically every continent. We feel it also here in Australia. And on the other hand, we're witnessing this um, civil society resistance to the siege that um, is felt to be being imposed um, on on Hong Kong. How this will play out is very unclear, but what's at stake, I think, from the point of view uh, of this bigger picture is, is whether Beijing is capable, um, as all previous uh, durable empires did in modern times, whether Beijing is capable of allowing a measure of flexibility of uh, internal pluralism within this empire or not. And the signs in Hong Kong at the moment are a bit unclear, but I think the news that's coming out of Hong Kong is not altogether uh, positive. That is to say, there is um, a will to kind of crush uh, this civil society resistance. But that, in turn, generates um, anxieties and, of course, hopes, uh, especially among young people, but probably uh, nearly a majority of the Hong Kong population who do not want uh, to be subject to siege and uh, to homogenization under Chinese rule. Professor Sung, what are the chances that Chief Executive Carrie Lam will end up scrapping this extradition bill altogether? Um, and 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 is it something that, at the moment, we can expect from the Chinese perspective that they will just allow that to happen as well? Well, the two specific bills that were being put on the table previously are now, in effect, uh, dead in the water. I think there is very, very little chance that they would be reintroduced in the forms that they were. Now, the reality with the Chinese government, or in fact the Chinese Communist Party, is that the party never forgets and it never forgives. And the party will get its part of flashback in due course. How it will do so, we don't know yet. It may not be in the form of reintroducing new versions of the same bills, uh, but they will be trying to do something in order to make sure that what they see as rebellious Hong Kong not being able to get away with what Hong Kong has done. I think what people in Hong Kong, the young activists in particular, will have to understand is the way how politics works in China. They are using very admirable methods, but they are methods that they drill inspiration from British India, when Gandhi was going for independence of India against a British empire which ultimately had to be answerable to a democratically elected parliament in London. We do not have anything comparable in the relationship between Hong Kong and China. And people in Hong Kong will also have to realize that things have changed. In 1997, Hong Kong was 
responsible for something like 20% of the Chinese economy. It, it, to, today, Hong Kong accounts for something like 3% of the Chinese economy. It is still very important to China, but 3% of the economy will simply be a tremendous pain for China to lose. It is not fatal. Thank if you. comes to shove, China can lose Hong Kong. Professor Sang of SOAS, University of London, thank you very much for joining us today. Bye-bye. And also Professor John Keane from the Department of Politics at the University of Sydney, also the author of The Life and Death of Democracy. Very interesting to hear from you also today. Thank you. My pleasure.